welcome to Sermon Seasonings, where we get to dig more deeply into the passage that we looked at on the weekend. My name is David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. On Sunday, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3 from verses 8 through to the end. And we saw, we really looked at the good life. It's the life that's lived graciously towards one another as believers, gracious towards those who are hostile and treat us badly, and gracious in how we answer those who challenge us and ask about our hope. And ultimately, we do that because God has been so gracious to us. That's right. Um, it's all about the good life and that the good life is gracious. And, mm. and, uh, and you know, even as we were reflecting through it, as we were talking about it and, and exploring it in the passage, you realise uh, the gracious life is good. It is, it is a, a wonderful and liberating way to live. Um, and so anyway, today, I thought after having spent two podcasts really thinking about some big scriptural mm. concepts and really deepening, diving into those, predestination and submission, if you haven't listened to them, go back and do it. Um, this week, we're going to return to digging into some details of the text mm. itself and exploring that and thinking through what they mean. And the, the text certainly that we're going to be looking at today has got some real <laughs> kind of digging to be done. Um, but before we get on to the... Uh, the notorious bit about mm. spirits in prison and everything. Yes, it's coming, but we'll be dealing with that down the track a little bit. I thought we'd actually just start by saying we looked at the good life on the weekend mm. and, and I don't know if you've noticed as we've been looking at 1 Peter, but he's got, he uses the word a lot. Um, the, the concept of good and evil just turns mm. up again and again and again. In fact, in 1 Peter, it actually has the highest concentration of the word good in the New Testament. Wow. And so, I mean, to be honest, 3 John has it more, but 3 John is about five verses long, so it doesn't kind of count. <laughs> um, all it has is two references to it. But but the point is, is, that, is that you'll have noticed that Peter has a lot to say about what is good and, and what is evil. And I think there is a sense where what Peter's doing, I hope you've picked up in the book, is a very simple and consistent message. He's writing to people saying, you belong to God, you're set apart for him, you've been given hope for him, and you need to live for him. Mm. And you're in a world that's not, that is not set apart for God, that is opposed to God and is opposed to you. And and so it, it really is this, he paints the world in this uh, very real either or. And so it really is a case of you're in or you're out. It, it is good or it is evil. And and so his his emphasis that if you're going to be God's people, you've got to strive for what is good and you've got to flee from what is evil. That's the, the, the centrifuge of holiness, mm. if you want to think about it that way. We, we are flung towards God mm. and, and we are um, um, compelled away from, from what is wicked. And we're going to see that um, especially as we do more in, in chapter 4 as well. So I thought, thought I'd just flag that for you. If you're th- saying, gee, he has a lot to say about good and bad, well, yes, he does. Mm. It's actually one of his um, very big themes. And he, um, he takes us back to Psalm 34 when he quotes kind of about the good life there. Um, so in verse 10 when he talks about whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. It's straight from Psalm 34. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we're, we're wanting to do in this podcast is especially to get the opportunity when we can to perhaps explore why, why use certain parts, mm. why cite various passages of the Old Testament to give us a bit of a window into how Scripture uses Scripture. And so um, I'm glad you've introduced Psalm 34 because I'd like us to, to think about 
uh, that's the first big thing I want us to really look at today is why does he use Psalm 34? And we're going to learn a little bit about Hebrew poetry as right. well. Um, now, this is the second time we've talked about Psalm 34 in our podcast. Mm. Uh, you might remember when we looked at David fleeing Abimelech uh, and even a lot of David's time as, as, a, as a refugee, in a sense, mm. um, in his flight, we saw that actually there's a number of Psalms in the, that are specifically about that time in David's life. And, and Psalm 34 is one of them. And so I thought I'd read you the, the, um, the subtitle to Psalm mm. 34, which, remember, is part of the text. And this is of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. Mm. So this is that time when David, he's been anointed, he's, um, uh, he, he's been a bit of a success, he's killed Goliath, he's, he's even been living with Saul and been fairly popular, he's married Michal, but then it all goes pear-shaped. Um, he realizes that actually Saul has now gotten it in for mm. him and wants to kill him. And so he's had to flee Saul. So he's not what he expected about being the Lord's anointed. And then when he flees from Saul, he actually takes refuge in the heart of the nations, right? In, in, in the Philistines, the enemies mm. of God's people. And so he hides it in Gath, but he gets discovered and he gets taken into the very throne room of the king of one of the kings of Israel's great enemy, the Philistines, and it's the first time that that uh, David is is, and the only time that David is described in either the letters of the books of one or two Samuel as being terrified, that the great Messiah of God's people. I, I guess it's 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 right at the mm. beginning of his flight, and so he doesn't know what to expect, and so he's he's terrified, and um and I think when you think about it, is there a better place? For Peter to go mm. when he's writing to a bunch of people who are being persecuted for their faith, who he's described as being aliens and strangers scattered throughout mm. the nations, that he actually goes, you know what, I'm going to go to the psalm that embodies that experience, mm. the Messiah himself in the throne room of the king of the nations when he's terrified. And, uh, and that's what the psalm is about. And so uh, I thought it might be good to, to read it. So would you like to read Psalm 34? It was our second reading on Sunday, but it's worth reading again. Yeah. So Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praises will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. 
but the Lord, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Now, the funny thing about that psalm is it's a psalm about um, a time when David went into that time terrified. And yet, how would you describe the tone of that psalm? It's joyful and hopeful. Absolutely it is. It is, um, it is a very, very confident mm. and uh, it, it is like the, the, the song of someone who has been uh, released from danger and suddenly has mm. worked out, why was I ever afraid? Mm. And, and why is he not afraid? Like, um, it, it is because he knows that God is attentive and is, always has his eyes on his Messiah that he's the Lord's anointed and that nothing mm. will, will, will jeopardize him. And, and so his exhortation to those that are reading is to say, you can trust God, have confidence mm. in him. Yet lions will go hungry, um, but the Lord will always stand by his people, those who seek after the Lord. And so there's this, this call to, to celebrate God, to actually fear him mm. and not fear um, things that otherwise might terrify you. And then, because of that to live steadfastly for him now that's that's what psalm 34 is about now there's another thing about psalm and this is a bit of a a, a teaser for what we're going to be doing in term four because we're going to be looking at the psalms um the thing about uh psalm 34 is it's an acrostic poem now what that means is that every verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. So it's like the equivalent of verse 1 starts with A, verse 2 starts with B, verse 3 starts with C, and so on, up until the end of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, they're equivalent to that. To, to yep. that. I love Bert, Gamble, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Um, now, you might sort of think, well, what's the point of writing an acrostic? Why do a poem that way? It's not like if you're actually listening to it, you'll you'll pick that up mm-hmm. because it's just the first letter in a word. And you might go, was there an A a little while back? It's, mm. You're not going to notice that. So you sort of think, well you've got to be reading it and you've got to get that that's what's going on. But what what's the f- effect of doing an acrostic? Well, the thing about an acrostic, if I said to you, I'm going to give you a talk on the A to Z of he- how to share your faith with mm. Christians, what am I communicating to you? There's a sense of completion because it's it's full. It's from the beginning to the end. Yes, it's, it's my way of communicating. Um, I've thought all about... Um, how to evangelize. And so I'm going to give, in fact, I know it so well that I can arrange it from A to Z mm. and give you the complete picture, right? So so that's kind of why you do an acrostic. Another famous acrostic is, of course, Psalm 119, yeah. which is a psalm that's all about what? The Word of, God, of God and how absolutely wonderful and full and important it is Mm. for the life of the believer and so it goes from a to z uh interestingly enough another acrostic is um the whole book of lamentations 
So Lamentations is is five chapters long. Chapter one is its own acrostic. Chapter two is its own acrostic. Chapter four is its own, own, and chapter five, and chapter three is a triple acrostic, right? <laughs> so each, and so so it's uh, you'll notice by the way if it's a multiple of twenty two, that's likely to be an acrostic. Um, so if you're looking at at, at Psalm one hundred nineteen, saying this is the this is what is there to be said about the Word of God. If you're looking at Lamentations. I think it's interesting. You're going. This is a this is a, a lament about the grief of a people that recognise God's justice upon them for their sin, Th- a thorough familiarity with lament. Mm. It's interesting though that right in the middle of it is a, is a message of hope, um, and so you might sort of go, well, hang on a minute. Why is Psalm 34 an acrostic? What is he thoroughly familiar with that he would write it? Well, if you're going to have a guess, what what do you think? Well, we would both be guessing, but yep. what, what do you think he's thoroughly familiar with? Well, he's, I mean, he's thoroughly familiar with the Lord and the Lord's goodness. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, verse 9 stands out like, Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Um, and it goes on in verse 10, but the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Um, he's the Lord who provides. Yes, he's, he's thoroughly familiar with the Lord's provision. He's thoroughly familiar with the Lord's deliverance mm. because he's experienced it in a, th- in a situation where he goes, I have no hope of surviving this. Mm. And so now if we go into 1 Peter and we think about the context for that, um, 1 Peter is where he's talking about, do not fear what they fear, mm. do not be frightened. Um, it, it says, even if um, if people give you evil, don't repay evil with evil um, or insult with insult, but repay, repay evil with blessings so that you might get a blessing. And remember the, the, the call from the middle of Psalm 34 to, to steadfastly turn from evil and seek after good. You're God's person. He will deliver you and vindicate you. And so it's, it's, a, it's quite a, a powerful choice of Psalm. And I don't think it's any accident that, that Peter would pick that. Um, to be the heart of this passage and give confidence. Um, uh, he's in, um, when, when you're called to live rightly, we want to hear that from somebody who's in the trenches. Mm. And, and this is, um, Peter is speaking to people who are suffering. He says, let me give you a psalm, not from somebody who's speaking about the good life, having lived a comfortable mm. life. He's speaking about what is good to do, having been in the lion's mouth. And seeing God's deliverance. And so he's saying that's a word for you because you're feeling like that right now. So it's quite a powerful use of psalm there. It is. It is. And so we go from that picture. And so having done that, um, where are we going to dig into 1 Peter today? Okay. Well, we're going to dig into the bit that we didn't even look at on on Sunday. And that is the very profoundly challenging, historically, what on earth is that all about (laughs) from biblical commentators for all of time, um, trying to understand the last four verses in particular of, of 1 Peter chapter 3. What What is exactly that talking about? Because there's been many, many different ones. Now, I'm not going to presume to be able to uh, present to you in a crystal clear way uh, what, what people have debated for centuries. But I do think that actually it is one of those things that if you stand back and think about what's going on, the message actually mm. is even if some of the details will still leave a little bit of gaps of could be this, could be that, the big message is actually fairly clear. Um, and at the same time, I think it's good for us to deal with because it intro- we're going we're to explore an important 
area of the way the Bible works and, 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 a, and a technique that the Bible uses called typology. Okay. Um, so if you want to read to us 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, we'll get into it. Sure. So for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Now, uh, one of the things that we need to understand here is that this is using a technique called typology. Now, typology is a way of understanding promise and fulfillment mm. in, in the Bible. Um, in other words, it's looking at a pattern of sorts that was set up in the Old Testament that as Scripture unfolds and God continues to reveal himself and his purposes, we realize that that pattern that was set up earlier foreshadowed a greater reality that can only be really understood uh, under the New Covenant when we see what happens in Christ, right? Um, so in other words, it's a pattern in the Old Testament. It points to a fuller realization of that same concept in the reality of the New Testament as God's revelation in its fullness is revealed. So that's that's kind of what typology is going on. Now, why do we think this is typology? Um, well, the, uh, the answer is that Peter actually tells us that that's what he's doing. Um, and so if you've if um, when you were reading to us verse 21 and hmm. if you've got a if you're looking at a Bible while you're listening to this when it says in verse 21 of the NIV and this water symbolizes baptism the words that symbolizes there is is the word antitupos which in other words this is an antitype, antitype. so so reading it quite literally it says this is also for you um, an antitype of baptism that now saves you and so um, he uses the word antitype. Now, the antitype is the one that happens in the Old Testament and the type is what it yep. points to. Okay, so so it's, it's not the against the type. It's not the against the type. <laughs> it's the before Four. type. Right. So that's Peter is saying that it is an antitype of, of baptism. Now, mm. what is an antitype mm. of baptism? Now, you might look at it and, and it would appear on the face of it because the NIV says, and this water symbolises baptism. Hmm. And well, there's water in the flood with there's Noah. There's water in the flood, so there's water in the flood and that water symbolises baptism. Um, I don't, that, that's not overly helpful because uh, the original doesn't say, and this water symbolises, but just this symbolises baptism. So what's the, this refer to? Does it refer to the water or to the whole story that was told in verses 19 and 20. I, as you can tell from my tone, <laughs> I think it's the whole story of verses 19 and 20 of which the, the water, coming of water in the flood was the culmination of it. And that that story from the Old Testament is the type, is the pattern for what then happens in verses 21 and 22. 
So, Dave, you're saying there so that the world of Noah's time and what was going on there is the thing that's setting the pattern for us to understand what's happening here in 1 Peter. Yes. So what we're going to do now is we're going to see how the rest of the New Testament uses the flood narrative typologically because it actually does turn up a couple of times. So we're going to have a look at a few of these now. Excellent. So we've got a couple of ways where Jesus, for instance, uses the uses the flood narrative. So mm. do you want to read for us from Matthew 24 verses 36 and following? Yeah, so this is Jesus speaking uh, and he says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So too you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus says, um, thinking about that time with Noah, it is, it is a, a demonstration that there is a time coming when it will be comprehensive mm. and 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 a call to be able to to open your ears and respond to to the message of the gospel um, and that there'll be people who will just cruise through their life and do what they do and ignore that message whilst there'll be some who he's calling to say listen to that message so there's a warning of what's going to happen mm. let me read to you from luke chapter mm. 17 verses 22 to 27 um uh, if you keep reading Luke's gospel, it goes to the same sort of place where you've just read from Matthew. But let me read to you from Luke seventeen twenty-two to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, suffering is brought into it here. Um, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. And and so there's the message. So on one hand, it's a message of of warning, but it's also a a message of saying, you know, don't be deceived by the apparent normality mm. because because this is coming. Um, so now, how about now, we've got to remember, Peter was there. Yeah. So that's the teaching that Peter himself heard. And, and what we'll find is that his theology of the flood, it, it runs straight out of that theology mm. of the flood that, that the Lord Jesus taught, as you, I guess, would expect it to. So let's now actually jump ahead to two Peter, same apostle, also writing, so it gives you a bit of a window into what the same writer, the way his his conception is of the flood and how it interacts with Christians. So he actually talks about it twice in 2 Peter. So do you want to read to us from 2 Peter chapter 2? Yep, so from verse 4 of chapter 2. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul, soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. You can see the parallels, can't you, with 1 Peter chapter mm. 3. You've, you've got that um, idea of good and evil again. Mm. You've got the righteous lot. You know, he, he, and these things actually often do get brought coupled together, actually, the flood and also the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They both, in a sense, foreshadow um, God's judgment. And, and that he knows how to bear with patience. He knows how to, um, uh, to judge the wicked and, and wait on it whilst at the same time delivering the righteous. So verse 9 of there is really helpful. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the righteous, unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Mm. Hold that thought because mm. that's going to be really important for 1 Peter. Now the other part, of course, is 2 Peter chapter 3. He's talking about something a little bit differently here. It's talking about people who scoff about the return mm. of the Lord. Yeah. So let's read from verse 3 of chapter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffering and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, mm. the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, mm. as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord mm. is like a thief and so on. Yeah. So so you've got that same idea where he's trying to encourage the readers there to, to look to the flood and mm. recognize the imminent foretelling that that gives, the promise that that gives that mm. there will be one again a comprehensive judgment in the future but he also brings in that idea of the lord's patience with those who are disobedient while he's awaiting salvation mm. so now if we go back um to 1 peter chapter 3 um we, we've got to we need to know how does noah what we're going to ask is how does the concept of noah and the and the, and the flood how is that going to correspond to baptism that's the that's the pivot point we're told that it is a type of baptism. Um, so as we try and think this through, let, let's deal with it in its two parts. First of all, how does 1 Peter use the flood? So do you want to reread to us just quickly that, um, that section, uh, verses 19, 19 and 20? So after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 
In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Okay. So, so we get the idea that a word from Jesus is given to these spirits. Um, uh, and by the way, when it says after being made alive, in the original it just says in which. Mm. Okay, so so that's their interpretation of what in which means. But if you look at it, it was he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and made mm. proclamation to the yep. spirits who were in prison. So you know, there's a question as to what does in which mean. Um, but the point being is that you see that it's, it's kind of saying back then, God was waiting patiently with the ungodly. Mm. Meanwhile... He had given a promise to Noah and during that time while he was being patient with the ungodly, those who had heard his promise were acting faithfully with that promise, building the ark. Yeah. And in the end, where does that lead? Well, the flood did come and and those um, who had actually followed the promise of God, they were saved, they were saved through the water. Now, it's not they weren't saved by the water. Mm. They were saved through it. In other words, even though that same water came down and cleansed the earth of all that was evil, um, well, as it turns out, not sin still. <laughs> not quite all. But, but, but <laughs> um, cleansed the earth of, 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 of evildoers, God actually preserved those whom he promised mm. to save. So that, that's what we see in verses 19 and 20. Okay, well, given that, let's read these next two verses and find out how this all relates to baptism. Indeed. So from verse 21, And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Great. So how old does all of this foreshadow baptism? Well, the thing about baptism is baptism happens once in a Christian's life. Normally, mm. at, ideally, at the very, <laughs> very beginning of it. It's, it is our initiation into Christ. Uh, to, to take out of this typology, it is our ark moment. Mm. So it symbolizes not the washing away of dirt. Peter's explicit about that. But that we are now pledged to God through Jesus. So we're, we're in a sense shut up securely in the ark that is the risen Christ. Um, now it's important that we notice with baptism that it's passive. So baptism is not you doing something, it is something that is done to you both in spirit and in practice. It's a sign of grace, not of our you know great mm, decision yeah. to do stuff. So you do not baptize yourself. If we come to Christ with a good conscience, and the word is good, it's not mm. a clear conscience. Mm. It's the same word that's used about how we're to approach the way we answer those who ask for the hope that we have, mm. with a good conscience. That is genuine repentance and, in, and faith. Um, we're pledged, promised to God by the one baptizing us. We're set apart for him and we're set apart from the rebellious world around us. It's a separation. It is, mm. it is our dedication and initiation into Christ. So, so the waters of the flood were the real destruction of the flesh of disobedient creation. Mm. Well, Christ has died in the flesh for us already, once for all, verse 18. And so we're now being rescued through him. But the mm. thing is that even as the waters of the flood brought death, God has secured his chosen people. Remember, the few mm. through that death in the safety of the ark, which was above those waters. 
and and not didn't have to submit to them yeah. or submarine to them really. <laughs> um, so Peter reminds us that in baptism we're pledged to God through the resurrection of Christ. So so baptism is all about us not having to go through all of that that death and God's judgment upon sin. Baptism is about our new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mm. And how sure is that hope? Uh, verse 22, well, well, Christ is now at the right hand of God and all authorities and powers are submitting to him. Yeah, so Jesus has brought us to God. Yeah, that's right. So, But here's where it fits in with the, the typology of the verses before. Christ may have done that already for us, but that final judgment is still coming for those who are not in him. So the ark mm. f- story foreshadows for us that just as back then there was a time when God was patiently holding off his judgment while the ark was being built, and while um, Noah and his family were living in obedience to God's promise of salvation, the rest of the earth was still living in disobedience. Mm. And, and so it is today as we live as those baptized into Christ as aliens and strangers. It's the same for us. The normal of the disobedient world around us and around the people who are in, in 1 Peter's time, it's a false security. Mm. And that is Peter's point, that we're, we are to be done with sin even if the world isn't because we know what's coming. And so that then flows straight into chapter 4, verse 1. So do you want to read that? Yeah, so therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Indeed. So, okay, that's what Peter's saying in verses 19 to 22. But come on, Dave, you can't dodge the question. Uh Who did Jesus preach to and when did he do it? Right. Okay. Well, the link between verse 18 and 19 in the Greek is simply, as I've mentioned, is in which. And so what that simply tells us is that um, Christ was made alive by the Spirit in which he preached to the spirits in prison. So we know specifically about those spirits. They were the ones who were disobedient in the times of Noah. So the question is, did the Spirit of Christ preach to them back then when the ark was being built or in between? or after his death and resurrection? Well, look, it, it could be either. And while I have an opinion on it, um, there is, there's, it's a tricky passage for a reason, right? And lots of people have opinions and on it. And lots of people have opinions on it. Look, I lean against it being um, after his death and resurrection that he went and, mm. and, and spoke. Um, Peter is explicit that the spirits preached to are those that were disobedient in the days of Noah. So I'm not sure that it makes sense that in between his death and resurrection, or after it, Christ would preach only to them in particular, and not to the countless others who were reserved for judgment who died in the thousands of years since the flood. Why why would you just go, I want to speak to those flood guys now, when when others are reserved? It doesn't quite work for me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, But I think the typology is what, why I lean for the one I think. Um, so because of Peter's typological use of the lead up to the flood, I lean to the interpretation that the disobedient in the days of Noah were not without testimony to the coming judgment, just like people today. Christ has been the word of God for all of eternity and any prophetic word is his word through the Spirit. And in fact, that's what Peter himself says about he even uses that language mm. about Jesus earlier in 1 Peter in chapter 1, verses 11. Do you want to read that for us, man? Yeah, so, so 10, he's talked about the prophets speaking and then he says that they are trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. 
So Peter himself has talked about the Spirit of Christ speaking through prophets. So I think Peter is saying that those times um, uh, were like now. There were some who heard and obeyed the word. There were some who heard and disobeyed it. But in the Greek, the same word is used in verse 19 for, for Jesus going to them and in verse 22 of him going into heaven. Mm. So it kind of forms what is called an inclusio, which is a, a literary device that begins and ends a unit and ties it together. And so really the whole thing is about the fact that what is a message of judgment to the lost is at the same time a wonderful message of victory for those who are saved. So helpful to see the way that the typology is there to help us to understand the bigger picture. Uh, what happened in the days of Noah point us towards uh, the future reality of what we have in Jesus and what he's done for us. Yeah, it's a reminder to stand firm, isn't it? If you just think about it, if you were in the days of Noah while that ark was being built and you see it and then, and then it's fully shaped and the rain starts to fall, uh, you kind of go, that was the right call, wasn't it? And, mm. and, and... Um, I'm glad I didn't give in. I'm glad I didn't just do what everyone else was doing, but that I actually trusted the promises of God. And that was just a point of the greater reality. Yeah, because we don't just look to the ark. We actually look to our risen King Jesus, uh, who is already seated at the right hand of God, who already has all authority uh submitting to him because of who he is. Um, and so we have every confidence every confidence to actually live for him uh, because we can stand firm because of all that he has done. And where Peter's going to go is he's going to say, so you're done with sin. Mm. It's not, not your world anymore to worry about that. No, because we've been pledged to God. Exactly. And so we look to Jesus and live for him. But that's next Sunday. <laughs> well, I've been Dave. And I've been Mandy. Join us again next week for Sermon Seasons.